0: Hi and welcome to Green Deal Big Deal, the podcast where we discuss Europe's green future. My name is Eva Iwaszuk.
1: And I'm Aaron Best. We're pleased to join you today from the offices of Ecologic Institute in Berlin.
0: In today's episode, we discuss the topic of resources. This is a topic we have implicitly touched upon in previous episodes, like when we talked about electric vehicles, plastics, textiles, or food.
1: The vast majority of human activities involve the use of natural resources, be they renewable or non renewable. And the use of resources is tightly linked with the climate and biodiversity crises. It's easy for us to take resource use for granted, but when we investigate more deeply, which I hope we'll do today, many surprises await us. For example, The most used resource in the world, by weight, is water. That's probably not surprising. But this might surprise you. The second most used material in the world, by weight, is concrete. Of course, concrete is a human-made material, so we're talking about the gravel, sand, energy, and more water that goes into that.
0: Yeah, I was pretty amazed when you told me this last week.
1: Yeah, so resource use is an incredibly complex topic, and a global one with sometimes very different impacts in different parts of the world. So we're delighted to have expert guests today that are working hard to shape the direction for resource policy and can help us navigate this complexity.
0: Indeed, we are very pleased to have with us today Florica fink who leads the European Commission's Directorate General for the Environment, or DGNV for short. That's the European Commission's department that holds large responsibilities under the European Green Deal. And we also have with us Janes Potocznik, the co chair of the International Resources Panel and former European Commissioner for Environment. Florica and Janes, welcome to the podcast.
2: Welcome. Thank you.
0: Florica, the climate issue is relatively well known to the public, it gets a lot of press. We also recently see biodiversity becoming a more widely discussed topic. Why would you say resources? are also an important matter, and why should we be paying attention to resource issues as well?
3: Thank you. Uh, First of all, for giving me the possibility to discuss with you and through you uh, with others this very important topic. Because as you started to say, everybody knows about climate change, but not everybody is understanding the linkage between climate change, biodiversity loss and pollution, and therefore then resources. In your intro, you already reacted to water and concrete, but by the way, water and concrete means also sand, which is also becoming a very scarce resources. And people do not understand that climate change, biodiversity loss, pollution, and therefore resources are interlinked. And very often people only think about the effects, effects of climate change, effect of biodiversity loss. But people do not look so much, what is the cause of all of this? And the cause is actually resource depletion, resource extraction as well. And another big issue is people, when they think about resources, they are thinking about the monetized resources like oil or timber or so wood or gas. But nobody really thinks so much about the ones that really make uh, the whole or is livable, which is water, as you said, but also clean air. It's also soil, soil, and therefore it links to land use. And these are the resources that become more and more scarce. And therefore, we want to go for sustainable or efficient resource use and extraction. And yes, that means also the way we produce and consume. But it doesn't mean that now we stop consuming or we stop producing. But it's very much about how we do it, what is sustainable, what is not sustainable? How can we stay within the planetary boundaries that we have? And this is, I think, where resources really come in. And a last thought is there is a, really a strong link to competitiveness and economic growth because these resources are not in there in abundance. They are shrinking and they become more and more scarce. And that's why we also look more and more in our legislation, and uh, I can explain that in more detail, on circularity, on competitiveness and innovation. But how to lower really this resource impact by going circular?
0: I think we'll get to what is the EU's response to these important matters. But first, Janis, I wanted to ask, what is your perspective here? So why would you say the resource matters are important and relevant?
2: Yeah, first of all, good to be with you. When we talk about natural resources, uh, I think first thing which I would really like to be clear about, and Florica already mentioned it a bit, is what we actually talk about. So we basically talk about materials, water, and land. And material use, materials actually comprise everything what we extract from the earth, which are metals, minerals, biomass, and fossil fuels. And by the way, this is actually at the root causes for the environmental problems. According to International Resource Panel, the triple planetary crisis of climate change, biodiversity loss and pollution, it's connected to that. Extraction and processing of only materials, it's driving 50% of climate impacts, actually 60% if we include also land use change. 90% of land-related biodiversity loss and water stress, and approximately 40% of particulate matter pollution. Climate, it's of course a massive challenge, and it rightly gets a lot of press and public attention. But it is a symptom of our underlying problems. We must always focus on the root causes of these symptoms. Otherwise, we will never really cure anything if we will not do that. So in short, overuse of resources, materials in particular, it's the core reason of planetary overshoot. The core reason behind the wasteful economy, we are locked in and that is why attention to the resource use and management, it's so very essential.
1: This is our 14th episode ever of uh, Green Deal, Big Deal. And we've always been focusing very much on the European perspective. And that's one of the reasons, Janice, it's very exciting to have you from the International Resources Panel joining us today to bring explicitly that global perspective in. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about the International Resources Panel and what you're trying to do in that context?
2: Uh, Very quickly, we listeners definitely know better IPCC and IPBS. IPCC is a science policy interface in the area of climate change, and IPBS in the area of biodiversity loss. And International Resource Panel, it's also UNEP-based science policy interface, but it's focusing on natural resource management. So we are trying to establish those important links between the use of natural resources and their impacts on environment. And how actually this is connected in particular with our economic activity and how can we basically best address that in an effective way. So we analyze trends and drivers, environmental impacts, and crucially, of course, also propose some solutions. So at the United Nations Environment Assembly, which will be held next month in Nairobi in February, we will release our second global resource outlook, global resource outlook for 2024 which is a kind of major overview of resource developments and this is approximately 40 scientists from all the world behind, 35 countries approximately in the steering committee, including of course European Commission which is the most active and here I have to thank DG Environment which is really putting its weight behind. And uh, I'm their co-chair. I co-chair it with Isabella Teixeira. Isabella Teixeira is representing global south and I'm somehow representing global north because it's seen that this is so delicate issue that it always needs to have well balanced views. And Isabella is my good friend from Brazil and we know each other for quite many years because she was also environment minister of Brazil when I was Commissioner for Environment.
1: Yeah, so in that report that's coming out this year, you're going to be taking a very systems-based perspective. Why is that important in the context of resources, Um, and, and what does it mean to take that systems perspective then?
2: Let me try to explain you very shortly what is our major change which we try to introduce through this Global Resource Outlook. You know that normally the approach, uh, which is classically done, it's pretty much silo way of looking through the success of economic sectors measured classically in the growth of gross domestic product GDP. What we are trying to say in our global resource outlook is, let us make a step back to what actually are human needs and how to best meet these human needs. And we, for example, are very clear about that having a car is not a human need. Mobility is human need. Or, I don't know, light bulb, it's not your human need. The light It's your human need. Also, the chair on which you are sitting, it's not your human need. The need is to sit. And refrigerator is not our human need. It's actually having a cool and healthy, safe food. So can we deliver all those human needs in much more efficient and less wasteful way. And we do claim, and we have put also our scientific modeling and weight behind that this is possible. Of course, circular economy, which I was also championing very much still in the times when I was environment commissioner, it's exactly that way of thinking. In particular, if you look to the circular economy in a kind of more holistic way, it's basically Looking at those systems which are consuming most resources because they are those who are behind the figures which I have mentioned before. And these are mobility, housing, nutrition system, energy system. I could name a few more because human needs are also, for example, I don't know, sport, culture, and so on, but they are not so resource intensive. So it is essential that we focus on those human needs which are most resource-intensive. So if we change that, we would provide quite a solid answers also on how best we can manage out of this locked-in situation where resources are currently used in a wasteful way.
0: Florica, so the listeners of our podcast are familiar with the fact that European Green Deal has been designed in a way to represent a more holistic approach to policymaking making to in some ways take the systemic view. And I would be curious to hear from you, how specifically does the European Green Deal address this need for systemic approaches when it comes to resources matter?
3: I would just pick up where Janus ended, because first of all, I would really like to pay tribute, not because he, as former commissioner, was planning the circularity approach, but actually the current Green Deal was very much also inspired by the last international resource panel report of 2019 yes. right so that was actually also one of the sources of inspiration just to put that in perspective and now turning to how what do we do and how do we make it systemic now let's be honest when people say something is systemic risk or it requires a systemic approach It's a bit of a code word for saying it's complex (laughs) and it is complex because it means we have to integrate different approaches which potentially even might be seen as contradicting each other when you think about let's say circularity or trade or geoeconomics and circularity or you think about you know food agriculture and nature So if we apply a systemic approach across sectors from mobility, energy, industry, agriculture, tourism to buildings, it means we have to look at it from a holistic way, also in legislation, but also by looking at what does this concept mean really on the ground for citizens. And it's true, this Green Deal was actually the first time that we had this overarching framework that we also coupled it then with the right financial resources to look at it not just in the green area, but also in the other areas like in funding after the pandemic. So that's, I think, quite important. And why do we look at that? Because we do know, as I think it came out now, some of the resources are really getting very scarce. And if we want to leave something for the next generation, if we want to also preserve, if you want our own current way of life, at least a certain degree of prosperity, fairness, democracy as well, where we do not leave somebody behind, I think we need to look at this in a very whole of society or systemic approach. Does it also lead to jobs and business opportunities? Does it also lead to a fair access to environmental resources? Does it not have an unintended effect? Because very often the most vulnerable are feeling most of the brunt of environmental degradation. It shouldn't become that environmental protection is becoming something that's a luxury just for a few rich and privileged. So that means, if you look at pollution, how can we make it sure that the polluter plays? That the risk of flooding is not having an effect on and the most vulnerable.
0: And for the next few months, if you could Say specifically which resource related priorities will the European Commission be working on? Because we talked in the podcast already about some strategies that have been published, the circular economy action plan. But I'm wondering if there are still like a few files that you're concretely working on in the next few months.
3: Well, we are entering a different institutional cycle. So we will not come forward with completely new proposals at this moment, just two months before the European election. But we do have put forward still new proposals on soil, on forest management, and also on vehicles and others, which still have also this resource implication and the circularity element in it. We also have to still finalize quite a lot of trilogues, which means discussing with the co-legislators of parliament and the council how our proposals that we put forward as commission will then really be adopted so that they can then take root on the ground. So there's still a lot to be finalized, but we are almost there. I have to say that. Um, But let me perhaps also say, why do we have to do it? Why is it so important? Because what we want to do with all our legislation that we have put forward under the Green Deal, not all, but many of it is really about going to a new sustainable economic model. Why is it important? Because I think Jan has already alerted to it. Most of the materials that we are using are not recycled. That means if you say like twelve percent of all the materials that are used are recycled, only eighty-eight percent is not. So that means there is a huge potential, and he he mentioned that sectors where we have to go. And I think we also have to see that going for the circular approach is not going overnight, and this is where. Many of our legislation has foreseen performance requirements of a product, mandatory content of recycled materials, and all of this has to start by the design of a product. So if I say, I I don't know, I need a new refrigerator, I need a T-shirt even, you have to say, can you make it from the design more performant, which means more durable, more reusable, more upgradable, whatever the principles of circularity are? But also, how can you make sure that you use less materials from the start or less energy? I mean, everything which is a material, right? And then, as Janusz was saying, how to ensure that we waste less resources. That's this life cycle approach. And that's what we are now have put quite systematic, going back on the last question, into our legislative proposals. And this is something which we have now put forward, but which we now have to start implementing.
0: I love how you both pointed out that we have to rethink how we are meeting the human needs in different ways and maybe not take for granted certain ways of doing things. Janes, I would be curious to know, what is your view on the EU resources policy and what are the key strengths here? Where do you think maybe more emphasis needs to be placed? And in general also if you would say that the EU policy with the European Green Deal approach has been a model for other regions of the world.
2: Yeah, sure. EU is certainly a leader in resource policy and also in circular economy. You might recall that I have put the proposal which was first circular economy proposal on the table exactly 10 years ago. That was summer 2014. And Florica probably remembers it was not very well accepted by all in the commission at that time. And it needed one year and a good debate that it clarified how important and how useful it is. Today, this is a globally well-accepted concept. And by the way, it's not a surprise. That's globally well-accepted concept. Why? Because circular economy logic fits well with any economy. Circle, if I can say bioeconomy, it's actually the oldest concept on the planet Earth. All nature is based or organized on the principles of circular economy. Nothing is lost. Everything has its purpose. And we humans, as part of nature, should, of course, abide by the same principles, which is unfortunately very logical in theory, but not so clear and simple in practice. So we should basically behave like humans are part of nature, which sometimes we do not, to shorten that. European Green Deal, it's indeed a visionary document and it inspired many. If I'm honest, during my commission times, something like that was simply not yet possible. And uh, it's not inspiring only people in Europe. It's inspiring policymakers and also others, also globally. It would be really, really important that this leadership is understood and continued by the European Commission and European Union also in the next mandate, because it will be quite critical if we will continue in this direction and that the logic, the intent of European Green Deal will stay there. I understand very well that there will be competitiveness pressures and questions on the table. But if we are entirely honest, these competitiveness pressures are not coming in the first place from the environmental side. They are coming from the fact of the economic rise of China, which would happen with or without environmental changes. It's happening because of AI, artificial intelligence, which is new kid in town. And this will be serious challenge for employment also. And I think in the meantime, what happened is also that the geopolitical reality is changing and we are seeing much more conflicts and much more unstable situations. And it would be really good to understand that better management, that access and use of natural resources was in human history always the decisive element for the well-being of nations. Unfortunately, it was also the reason for many conflicts and many wars in the past. And it would be essential to understand that when we talk about issues like environmental transitions, like European Green Deal, we don't talk only about environmental issues. We basically talk about sustainability in broader sense. We talk about peace, security in the broader sense, because these are essential elements if the world will go in the wrong direction, you can just expect more people on the streets, more conflicts. And this is actually the core decision, which is flying in front of us. So I think it would be really important that the European Union keep that lead, that it understands that in new geopolitical reality, it actually has more opportunities than in the past, But not through questioning the right orientations which were done in the past, but rather asking where they need to be complemented, how they need to be deepened, then we will have a more clear success at home because at the end, Europe and the United States are still those who are most overshooting planetary boundaries and consuming materials per capita most, Europe less than US, clearly. But still, we are on much too high levels. So showing that we are ready and able to change, it's the best leadership which one can give.
0: I feel you have in many ways answered my next question, which was why do we need global cooperation to address the resources challenges? But maybe I will ask you what are actually the policy arenas in which the resources policy is discussed? Because. I think, you know, when it comes to climate, a lot of people are familiar with the COPs. They make headlines every November, December. But I wonder where are resources issues discussed?
2: Yeah, uh, let me combine both questions in one answer. We should understand that in the first time of the human history, we face an emergence of a single tightly coupled human socio-ecological system of planetary scope. We have never lived in such kind of situation, humanity. We see climate change, we see pandemics, we see trade, and I could continue artificial intelligence, internet, and so on. This is all global, and it was never before global. So if you want to deal with issues which are of a global character in nature, you have, by definition, share more sovereignty and cooperate more. It's no other way to deal with those issues humans are more interconnected and interdependent than ever, which also means that our individual and collective responsibility has enormously increased if we want to strengthen our collective resilience. So I think that is very important to understand. But since we are talking a lot about this material story in the context of the climate story, you know these critical raw materials are in... IRP, we are actually calling them transition materials because critical raw materials, it's a more Western point of view. Critical raw materials actually emerged because of the energy transition needs as a topic. Materials came into our attention under the energy story. But if you look to the most important sentence included in the European Green Deal, it's basically saying in the same sentence. Our goal is to reach net zero emissions by 2050 and decouple our economic activity from the resource use. And while we are putting a lot of attention on the first, we have not in the past put a lot of attention on the second. The most important answer would be actually looking how to reorganize resource-intensive systems, which are using a lot of critical raw materials or materials at large, like mobility, like housing, how to reorganize them in the way that actually the pressure on the future needs of critical raw materials and energy would be lower. And with that, we could, I'm pretty sure, make energy transition easier and also avoid some of the polarizing questions like How much to use, for example, bio-based materials for the energy production? Or do we need deep-sea mining now because of the additional needs? Or how much do we need carbon capture, sequestration solutions? So all this could be much better managed if we would look into the mirror, reorganize in the first place the reasons why we are where we are in this wasteful economic approach make it more efficient. And via that also make the energy transition easier.
1: Well, you anticipated the exact direction that I wanted to go next with this conversation into how these uh, resource challenges, you know, interrelate with the climate transition specifically and that shift. And w- one issue that comes up is also the, the labor rights and human rights element of that. Could you um, unpack that a little bit for our listeners, Giannis? And then I'd like to turn to you, Florica, about what the EU is doing in this space, um, you know, regarding the issue of critical raw materials and and some of the resource transition aspects of the climate transition. Uh, Yanis?
2: Yeah, there are two aspects, basically, of this labor human rights. In the context of mining, it is clear, and also I think that the official documents are very clear about that, that if you need additional mining, it should be organized following the highest environmental standards. And also, more of the created value should stay with the origin countries, which I think both it's essential and right. But to put that social issue a bit more in the context, allow me just one sentence more. I'm also a member of the Club of Rome, and we have recently released, 50 years after the Limits to Growth, the Earth for All approach, which is basically coming to a very simple conclusion that the social tipping points will be reached before the environmental tipping points. So you can hardly talk with people about decarbonization, about decoupling, if they have problems, how to survive. It is really essential and I really hope that the next follow-up of the European Green Deal will better connect the social and environmental stories because they are pretty much two sides of the same coin. It's really important that we take that into account to understand it and that we see that major challenges for employment are basically not coming from environmental side. On the contrary, I think quite a lot of answers of new business opportunities are coming there, but they are coming from other obvious reasons like introduction of artificial intelligence. Where, if you remember, Elon Musk has recently said when artificial intelligence will be fully plugged in, actually we will not need uh, no more employment. So these are serious challenges, of course, and they will be from the social point of view, really critical. But I really believe that this social story, in particular, connected with the next generations, would be very, very important to be added. And I have heard recently in European Parliament in one of the debates where I have participated a really good proposal from a representative of youth saying that they hope that the next European Commission will basically have also commissioner for future generations. I think that would be a super excellent gesture.
1: Florica, your view on the the synergies and trade-offs of the rapid climate transition with labor, social, uh, other resource uh, issues as well?
3: I mean, I very much agree with everything what Jan is saying. At the same time, one also has to see that there is a geopolitical tension and there is a geopolitical competitiveness. And at the same time, we also don't know. We have seen the pandemics. We will have a new, perhaps we could have some new types of external shocks that we are not expecting, which again does interrupt the supply chain and everything else. So going for some critical material, let's say recycling is potentially not a bad thing, especially as we know that we need these materials. What is it? It is uh, lithium, it's cobalt, it's rare earth elements. All what we do not have here in Europe But we need them for the sustainable technology transition to power electric vehicles, have store renewable energy, solar panels, all of this. So we need them. From our point, we have put forward, for instance, a batteries regulation to lower the footprint, but at the same time also to bring in a content of recycled materials so that we keep and use certain of these materials inside Europe bring them back and put them back into new batteries, which at the same time should be not only having less harmful subsidies, but also be more performant. So you might say, oh, this is an issue of strategic autonomy. Yes, it is also a question of resilience building. It's a question also of making us less susceptible to external shocks, which we cannot necessarily control. Now. Having said that, I also have to immediately to say all of the challenges we are facing, the triple crisis, so climate change, biodiversity loss, pollution, has no boundaries. So we are in a global situation. And therefore, it is not that we are closing our markets, closing ourselves. We need to be aware that we need to collectively, as Janice was saying, collectively address this issue. There are many who talk for about resources as global goods at least certain types of resources. right? So we really have to look at it. And when I think about that, I would not only give the example of this rare earth, but also look at nature. I mean, we have to really preserve, protect, restore our nature, which we, by the way, have put forward with a nature restoration law, because there is an enormous dependency on having healthy nature, In particular, and that's not just in Europe, globally, the GDP is totally dependent, at least half of it is dependent on healthy nature, or at least one of the ecosystems are often linked to an industry. So this is not just us. And I very much like also what Janice was saying about this is about fairness. This is about also keeping a little bit our, our democratic values, but also cooperate with others. We can't do this alone. But if we know that we are so dependent with overall the global GDP, half of the global GDP is dependent
2: on one way or another of a healthy ecosystem, we have to cooperate. Can I say just a sentence? Because Florica very well touched the things. You know, um, if we look broadly to the climate picture, it's not too promising. Because basically, if we look at it from the global level, the CO2 emissions are on a record level, we have practically reached 1.5, which means that we are not discussing anymore how we will limit to 1.5, but how we will come back to 1.5. And what is most worrying for me, is basically that the global fossil subsidies have actually topped $7 trillion in 2022. They were never higher than in year 2022. And this was not COP number one, this was COP28 we have to understand that there is still a lot to be done between the hypocrisy on one hand and the real intention to deal with the climate change. But there are two things very well pointed by Florica, which are, for me, the best things which happened in COP28. One is more attention given to nature-based solutions. And I think that Brazil will follow suit on what is happening there because they are very much interested. And the second is more attention given to materials potential for the solutions in the area of climate. I was, all previous cops actually, asking to be involved. This time, I was actually trying to limit the involvement because the demand for our engagement of the engagement of IRP was coming practically from all the sides. This is, in a way, recognition that also the people who are dealing with climate change in energy area do start to understand that, it will practically not be possible to solve those problems only looking through the energy optic. We need to look through the nature optic and we need to look through the resource optic, because through that, we are becoming more powerful to make real solutions also in the climate field.
0: Yes, thank you very much, Janis, for offering this more optimistic view on the results of the recent COP, because I think sometimes it's easy to lose hope following those negotiations. We are nearing the end of our interview, and we normally ask our guests for their recommendations for policymakers. However, the two of you actually are thought leaders, decision makers yourselves. And therefore, we would be keen to hear from you what are your key priorities now. And maybe specifically, you could tell us where would you like to pursue more paradigmatic changes? Where do you think more incremental change is needed? And what do you think should stay as it is or you're trying to keep from changing?
3: We have had the Green Deal, but now we have to taking root on the ground. There were some who said, the Green Deal, but where's the deal for me, right? And that is where we now have to prove that the concepts, the ideas that are behind really lead to more fairness, really lead also to sustainable solutions, also to sustainable jobs, and in a way, a type of growth that stays within the planetary boundaries, but leaves nobody behind. So, I mean, it sounds a little bit like, oh, it's always the same, but it's really where we have to go now. We have to make sure that we treat in particular nature and resources, land use, water use in a way that we leave these resources for the next generation. And that links for me also to very much to keeping fundamental values because otherwise It is for a few groups and not for everybody. And that will be a disaster for everybody. So implementation will be very much the rollout of all these legislation. Our priority, and I'm happy that now in all the three COPs, is an understanding of the interlinkages and that you cannot solve one crisis without addressing the other two, which is not only climate, but also biodiversity loss and pollution. And if you do this, so these triple crisis approach... We do this together with others, obviously, but we have to be mindful that we are not looking at trade-offs, but rather look for win-win solutions because, yes, we are going through a very, very profound transition, and not just us. Actually, the whole world is. And I see that third countries are very smart about it and very good at it because potentially they were exposed to it earlier, and I'm very much welcoming that they are taking also lead. It's not just that we have been green leaders because we are good in regulation. It also is important that we have green ideas and green innovation and green technology. So all of this has to come together. But I think even if this future will be very different from today, I think it can be, if you do it right, also a very sustainable, can be a fair one. And we need it because otherwise, I mean, for resources, coming back to our initial topic, resources could be really the source of conflicts, of polarization. And we would like to address it up front. And I think it is possible. Some of the Green Deal solutions are exactly in that way. And I think we need to explain, but also make it happen on the ground, that people see the effect on the ground, that what is in for them. And I think this is the phase that we are now addressing in the whatever you call it, Green Deal 2.0 or not, but in the next cycle. So I'm actually hopeful and optimistic, and I have to be, and I am almost, but um, we have to be realistic as well. We have to act now, otherwise we would not be doing justice to the next generation. But I think we have all the means, we have all the knowledge, so we can act on this.
0: It's great to get an insight from you on what might be you know, coming up in the Green Deal 2.0, as you called it. So we'll be definitely watching that. And Janis, what would you say are your priorities right now?
2: If you would allow me, I would pack them in two groups. One is mm-hmm. more conceptual, things which would need to be changed, and one is more concrete. On the conceptual level, I think we need to move from the situation where human sign function of economic success, which is pretty much the reality today, to an economy which would be economy in function of human needs. So, setting the order right, if you want. Second, we would need to move from an economy which is considering humans as external, superior to nature, to an economy acknowledging that we are embedded with nature. Destroying nature is simply destroying ourselves, and this is pretty much the problem even of the economic theory. The third is we need to move from an extraction-based production to a creation-based production. We should simply stop stimulating extraction-based economic success and to reward rather responsible, innovative, creative ways of meeting human needs. And finally, in this more conceptual level, we need to move from an egoistic, short-term-based interest governance structures and logic to cooperation and sovereignty. We need more equal world and we must improve collective resilience. So we need a convincing intergenerational pact, if you want. In more concrete terms, that would mean that if we want to build this decarbonized and decoupled world, several major innovations are needed. First, we need a new approach to value. Redefining value as delivery of genuine human needs, not as concentrated sectoral profits. So resource prices should reflect these redefined values. And today, this is the major problem on the markets. Second, we would need to set overall targets to guide resource use and ensure consistency with other globally agreed environmental goals. The international science community needs to work on translating climate and biodiversity commitments into resource use targets. Third, we need creating low-carbon, clean, circular business models. This means reorganizing production to use less energy and resources to meet human needs. If we talk about sufficiency, it doesn't mean that we need to have less. It means definitely that we have to deliver this same with less energy and less resources. Fourth, we should make trade an engine of sustainable development, incorporating the impact of resource use into trade agreements, enabling producer countries to capture larger share of resource value. And finally, we should vision a positive future to unlock this investment and innovation capacity needed. To put these solutions into action, we need positive forward-thinking perspectives on what is achievable. To facilitate this transformation, the world's most ambitious researchers and governments should thus play a crucial role in establishing and reimagining the goals. In short, there is still to be done by International Resource Panel and other scientific panels, as well as uh, still a lot to be done by DG Environment. But most importantly, this needs to be understood, supported, implemented also by colleagues which are responsible for other areas, which you know very well, Florica, that it's not the easiest. So in one sentence, the future will be green or there will be no future at all. And if you want the last sentence about optimism, yes, I'm an eternal optimist, if not from objective reasons, from a subjective ones, optimists live much longer and better.
1: Florica and Janis, thank you so much for joining us today and for a fascinating discussion about resources and everything connected. Um, Very grateful for your participation and for sharing your views with us.
3: Thank you for having me. Thank you a lot. It was a pleasure. Thank you also from my side.
0: So Aaron, I really enjoyed the conversation today and I'm curious what are your takeaways?
1: Yeah, it was great. I mean, it was really interesting to bring in the global level, so specifically with Yanis, also to speak with such high-level guests. I think that was quite interesting. Like you said, you know, usually we ask about the recommendations to policymakers, but in this case, they really are the policymakers. And also right before IRP is about to release its next report. So uh, listeners, if you're interested, that report is coming out very soon in 2024. I think I think one of the things that's interesting is also the just the way, really struck me how this holistic and systemic thinking has now really made its way into policy and is represented in policy. I mean, I have a few more points. What struck you?
0: I liked a lot of, um, let's say, maybe framing issues here. So for example, the fact that we asked them about climate change and biodiversity as those issues that are more spoken about, and they both mentioned the fact that those are symptoms of the issues, but we really have to understand what are the root causes. And I think what really connects to that is what they were talking about, the fact that we have to be looking at the, you know, spot where the resources are being extracted, they were being kind of taken from the ground or wherever they're being taken from. Well, very often we really focus on the consumption end of things. Mm. Uh, But just changing consumption patterns or behaviors is absolutely... Uh, not enough. We have to really understand well, I can't put it better than the way Janice put it. We have to think about the human needs, so how human needs are being met uh, and how we redesign supply chains and how we redesign basically how the economic incentives as well uh, in order to meet those human needs. And I think that's where we're talking about this really paradigmatic shift when we cannot be just looking at efficiency and small changes.
1: Yeah, I mean, you can really tell, especially with Giannis, that I mean, he's thinking very deeply in terms of you know the key drivers of things and also what the factors are. I mean, he mentioned social tipping points coming before the environmental ones. You know that so even though it's a, a, an environmental problem, thinking in the context of society, governance, uh, democracy about those social aspects as being one of the key things that we need to keep in mind um, and one of the factors for success in environmental policy. And Florica, too, she referred to unanticipated shocks. We're we're talking about all these complex, interrelated things. And then, of course, you know, we've just been through COVID. And she, you know, she mentioned there could be something else that comes along. and, And are we robust to that? And, you know, the artificial intelligence came up in our conversation. And I think that is a good example of one of these big systemic things that we don't quite really understand yet, and that may have major implications for all these questions, including the social ones, including how our economies function.
0: Yes, and I think that in Europe, many of European citizens are still largely sheltered to different resource scarcity and shortage issues compared maybe to the rest of the world. She mentions, for instance, thinking about water resilience. I think that's something that is probably obvious to European farmers, let's say, but many of us, you know, are not expecting to find the taps dry in their homes. But indeed, globally, we are seeing so many what resource scarcity issues turning into local conflicts, driving the polarization. And in the conversation today, I was happy to hear that, you know, this is something that is kind of being in some ways, anticipated, in some ways, talked about, because I think that really this, we're not far away from the time when we really have to be thinking about those issues.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: I think another aspect that I was very interested to hear about, especially in this podcast where we want to address also younger audiences, is the matter of intergenerational justice and intergenerational respect and how the European Green Deal has to be, in a way, a pact for the future generations, like the Green Pact for the Future Generations. And I love this framing of it. And I think this Mm. is something that should be front and center, really, when we're talking about environmental policy today. And many of the closing points from Janes, it gives me hope to know that the next generation, the young people who are today in their late teens, early 20s, are thinking in a similar way and they're Mm -hmm. going to become the next decision makers. I hope very soon, because I think in that generation, it's very embedded and they really understand that this is a critical moment for us to act or go bust in Mm. a very existential way. And I'm very glad to see that those young people are being heard increasingly and are also taking up leadership positions increasingly.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That intergenerational aspect, you know, really is at the core idea of sustainability, but it's easy to sort of lose sight of it. It sort of gets abstracted away. So it was nice to see it brought up explicitly in today's conversation.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And maybe as my last words, I was very glad to have this conversation as close to our season finale, just because I think it sums up so many things that we're talking about and coming up to, you know, European Green Deal being this overarching, holistic policy that is trying to adopt this systemic approach. And I think with the words of Janice and Florica, we could really see how this is being put into practice and get some insights of maybe what's to come in the next few years in the next commission.
1: Exactly. We'll see what's next.
0: Thank you for tuning into our show and making it as far as the credits. We hope this episode helped you understand better the topic of resources and the importance of policy solutions to govern the use of natural resources.
1: You can find other episodes of this podcast on all major podcast platforms and apps, including Spotify, Apple, and Deezer as well as on YouTube. Please subscribe to the podcast to find the new episodes in your feed.
0: You can find us on Instagram at greendealbigdeal, Deal, and you can find all the episodes on our website greendealbigdeal.eu.
1: This podcast is part of the European Environment Initiative, funded by the Federal Ministry for the Environment, Nature Conservation, Nuclear Safety, and Consumer Protection. The ministry supports this initiative on the basis of a decision adopted by the German Bundestag.
0: The podcast is produced by Chiara Macetti, Eva Ivashuk, Ricarda Faber and Aaron Best. Sound design by Lena Ebley. Graphic and web design by Jennifer Run. Special thanks to Johannes Seilnacht, Liliane Sala, Leonard Wicke, Camilla Bausch and Michael Lorenz.